ahead and grab your Bibles, Romans chapter 5. Let me just apologize. I did have a, uh, uh, a PowerPoint for you, but I did not copy it onto my jump drive. So I do not have a PowerPoint for you. The other thing is uh, uh, I rode my bike here and I forgot my tie. So let me just ask for your forgiveness in advance for looking like um, I don't know how to dress myself. Right? I'm not wearing a tie up here, so forgive me. Um, I didn't want to ride my bike back to get a tie. Forgive me. <laughs> yeah, well, that would be the white, the white shirt with the pocket protector and all that good stuff. Uh, yeah, with the, <laughs> that's enough from you, Mark. Okay, uh, Mark, Romans chapter 5. And um, we want to look at the first five verses. My goal was to do 11, but we're not going to be able to do that. Uh, the first five verses, if you'll stand with me in reverence to God's word, we'll just hop right on in here. This, of course, is part of your reading from the last week. Paul writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Go to prayer. Our Father, as we gather here this evening with our Bibles open, we, we ask that you would answer our prayers as you do regularly. With our Bibles open, open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet. That we will be transformed by the gospel as revealed in your word, by the power of the Spirit, for the glory of your kingdom. This is your work, and what a passage we have here before us. This indeed is good news. Let us believe the good news and live the good news so that others may know this good news. May I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. See you. A couple years ago, maybe it was during COVID, maybe it was before, so within the last 80 years, um, my, my mother had a real dilemma on her hands. It was a real crisis. She couldn't update her phone because she didn't have any free space. Any other grandparents have that problem? We can talk about millennials and Gen Zers and their phones all we want to. But the real problem I've found are you grandparents, right? Now, why could, did mom not have enough room on her phone? She bought a phone with extra space. The reason she didn't have enough space to update her, her telly is because too many, you know what it is, Lisa. Pictures and videos. Pictures and videos of the grandkids, right? The only ones I was on there is when I was with the grandkids and kids, right? That's the only reason I, you would find my, my ugly mug in there. But, but this was a problem. She's like, and of course she doesn't come and say, I, 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 can't, I can't update my phone because I have no space. Even though you get a screen that says you don't have enough space to update. What she says is, my phone doesn't work, what's wrong with it? Right? And there's the big red thing that says, you know, you need to do this. You click it on the settings and updates. And it says, you know, why, why I won't update. I said, Mom, I know the problem. You need to get rid of pictures and videos. And that is, that is, no, she'd rather get rid of her husband. And um, um, so, so I said, well, well, mom, have you not backed these photos up? What, what if you damage your phone? You would lose, I mean, thousands of, of photos and videos. 
Well, no, I haven't backed them up. I need to put them on the computer. Like, no, 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 I'm talking about back them up on a cloud. What in the world are you talking about? The cloud, right? I mean, what, what are you talking about? You can't throw your phone up in the sky and then leave the bed. What are you talking about? Said, Mom, you back your phone up on the cloud that you can access wherever you are, and, and it's, it's a backup. She goes, well, where do I get one of those? I said, Mom, you already have one. You have one. It is called Amazon Prime. You know all that money you pay on an annual basis to get two-day shipping? It comes with other benefits. And I had this entire conversation with my parents. Yes, you get two-day shipping with Prime. That is awesome. Good. If you buy a lot of stuff on Prime, you might as well take advantage of it. It'll pay for itself. Okay? Otherwise, you got to pay for shipping. But in addition to that, Prime comes with a video streaming service. They have a smart TV. Well, there's a joke there. But they have a smart TV and a Roku that comes by default Amazon Prime Video they had not logged into to use. Furthermore, what you get is, is uh, access to Amazon Music. They're carrying around old vinyls or whatever it is they use, right, to listen they listen, you know, uh, old Merle Haggard records, or for mom, it's uh, Kenny G, one like girly dude, I can't remember what his name is, or barely Ma- 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 Manilow, yes, yes, now I regret calling him girly dude, because some of y'all going to be fans, and that was me making a joke to myself, and then uh, uh, Elvis, oh yes, Elvis, she went to watch the Elvis movie at least twice, um, and for dad, I, I don't know what he, he would listen to, I guess, but they could listen to that, it's right there, they're already paying for it. And then, of course, is the cloud service. Unlimited, am, am, uh, unlimited photos you can back up on the Amazon uh, cloud. Photos. Unlimited. If she just got rid of the photos on her phone, she would still barely have enough room, but she would have room to update her phone. It's amazing, isn't it, how, how we can invest in things. We can own something. Something could be ours, and yet... We fail to see or appreciate the benefits that come with it. There is a simple solution to her problem that she had already invested in, but for some reason, she refused to take advantage of what was already hers. We do the same thing as Christians. When we think of the gospel, when we think of salvation, often we think of it exclusively in terms of fire insurance. Give me Jesus so I don't get hell. I want to go to heaven when I die. And thus, when we think of salvation, we often put it in terms of eternal life, and that's part of it, and now i got to go to church and put up with those people, right? But if you read the Bible, the, the doctrine of salvation is much more robust, and the benefits of receiving the gospel uh, far outweighs anything else that we have in this world. If only we would take advantage to what is already available to us. Now, Paul, up to this point, and we have to make this point because chapter 5, verse 1 starts with that important theological word, therefore. And you've heard me say before that whenever you see the word therefore and you ask yourself, self, what is therefore, therefore? And therefore is therefore to point us back to the first four chapters. I went to the cemetery to tell you that, right? Right, this basic uh, logic. 
Right? It therefore points to what came before it to set up what comes after it. And therefore points us to Paul's argument about what the gospel is. And he really makes two key arguments, two truths, at least for our purposes here, here this evening. The first is all of us are sinners who cannot save ourselves. The second is salvation comes by justification by faith alone. Okay? So we are sinners, and we cannot save ourselves. We can only be saved through the justifying work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Let me see if I can give it to you in a single verse, again, just for the sake of time. I'd like to get you out here at least by 10 o'clock. Romans 3, 23 to 25 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That was, that was one of your vacation Bible school memory verses growing up, right? My daughter is learning. The Romans wrote it in her Bible class in school. Right? She, yeah, do you know Romans 3, 23? Yeah, yeah, I, I know it, right? And uh, Romans 10 was another, right? If we confess from our mouth, Jesus, Lord, believe in our heart, God's raising from the dead. That's free. Verse 24. So we, we are, we've all sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And there's a whole lot there we don't have time to dive into, but notice you have all, all the truths there. We are sinners, all of us. Romans 3 is indicting uh, all of us guilty of sin, every human being that's ever walked to face the earth. And that justification comes by means of grace as a gift through the redeeming work of Jesus at the cross, whom God offers as an atoning sacrifice. Propitiation will be the fancy word here to appease the wrath of God. Well, this is all presumed in the first line, in this opening line of chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. You see it there? It's right there. We haven't made anything up. First four chapters, particularly chapter 4, develops the doctrine of justification. He looks at both David, but more importantly, he looks at Abraham, who received and was declared righteous before the act of circumcision. And, in case you don't know your Bible, Abraham lived before... For Moses. So Abraham was declared righteous before there were, was a law by which to obey or to break. Thus, Paul's argument is justification, that is to stand righteous in the sight of God, though guilty, we are justified um, by faith alone. It's the great Reformation mantra of sola fide, faith alone. What he does in the rest of our passage, he'll develop justification a little more in chapter 5, setting up to talk to sanctification chapter 6, 7, and 8. But what he does here in these first five verses is he pauses and he says, I want you to consider, having been justified, what benefits we have with that gift. That gift isn't just that we've been justified, though that is a major gift. It's like two-day shipping. That's awesome. That's worth the cost of a mission. But in addition to that, we have so much more in as a gift from God. I want to highlight two, really as a summary. We, we could do a dozen here, and I mean that. But I want to highlight two that I think will summarize all of it. And I don't know how we will be able to do all of it, because we'll be here, there, and everywhere. The first one is found in verse 1, and that is peace. Peace. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. Thanks to the hippies in the 1960s, maybe I should blame some of you for this, peace has become a relatively ubiquitous word. 
Now, modern hippies may change the term, will prefer the term justice over peace, but there is an obvious overlap, right? Um, so, so, so the uh, riots against Vietnam and whatnot are all about peace. But, but, but what, um, what we mean by peace as Americans is often limited to the definition of the absence of conflict. So whenever we, we were riding in the streets and, and, and on our way to Woodstock in 1969, you're looking at every camera like, yeah, man, right? What do we want? We want the end of the Vietnam War so we can all get together, get together light the can, light, light the, sing the Coca-Cola theme song, light candles, and go to a Bob Marley concert or something like that, right? We want peace. We don't want war. We don't want conflict. Just peace, man. Just give me peace. Let's all find a commune some, somewhere strange in California, and we will have peace. That is not what the Bible means by peace. It's part of it. Certainly the absence of conflict. Remember that David found, or really Solomon found rest. He came to a place of peace. And by that means that David had whooped up everybody, and they were scared to death of Solomon and his army, so he left him alone. The absence of conflicts. We can speak of the same thing of, of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace in the time of Jesus and the apostles, that through Roman strength came a period of peace and advancement of Western civilization. Certainly there's true that we can speak of the absence of conflict, but peace in the Bible isn't limited to that. It's much more robust. The biblical, or at least the Hebrew term for peace, is shalom, and it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 1 and 2, God's creation was described by the Creator as good, even after day 6, very good. It was complete, and it was a reflection of a divine artist. That word complete is important because that's where we get the idea of rest and peace in the Bible. Uh, something that is holy is something that is, that is with, with, without error in it. it, it that, that the, the world was complete. Life in the garden was, uh, was one of both individual and communal peace. Adam and Eve did not have many marital fights in the garden. Right? What you have is communal peace because you have personal peace within the garden. No shame, no scars, no fears, no conflict, no division, no pain, no broken hearts. Just peace. And this is what the Jews have in mind when they speak of shalom. God and man in communion. And when God and man are in communion, man and man are in communion. That is the biblical idea of shalom. Peace, rest, contentments. God and man, man and man. But of course, you know your Bible. You know that the problem came when sin entered into the equation. The first couple exchanged shalom for shame. And with shame came fear and conflict, division, suffering, injustice, chaos. In a word, sin. God and man were no longer in communion, right? So, so the minute they hear God walking through the garden, what's the first thing they do? They go and they hide. And they turn to man-made religion, in this, in this uh, instance, uh, fig leaves, to cover their shame, believing God could, could not and would not cover their shame. God and man were no longer in communion. Because God and man were no longer in communion, man and man, or in this case, man and woman, were not in communion. So it isn't just me and my neighbor. It's me and my spouse aren't in communion. 
The two people who, who ideally love each other the most, the two have become one flesh. The one has now become two again. Sin has entered to the picture. And as a result, all around humanity was chaos, injustice, hatred, violence, and unrest. And in a word, the world had lost shalom in favor of a world dominated by sin. We exchange shalom for shame. Now, the longing of the biblical writers is for us to return to shalom. And we can't look at this in great detail. I'm sure we've done this before. I know I've done it in other settings before. Let me give you a few examples. In Genesis 4, Cain takes his brother out into a field, a motif that will show up later. For example, Joseph is taken out into a field where he is put into a pit. Um, um, uh, Absalom took Abnon out into a field where he killed his brother like another Cain. So that's a motif you'll find throughout Um, But Cain searches for peace through anger and violence. In fact, God says in Genesis 4, 6, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? And he describes Cain in animalistic terms reminiscent of the serpent. Remember, they are just outside of the garden. He says that sin is crouching at the door which I think might be the, the door that is, that is guarding, that is keeping you outside of, 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 of the tree of life. Sin is crouching there. The serpent is arriving again. Why are you angry? Why is your countenance falling? Genesis 11 is another example where at the Tower of Babel, humanity comes together to build their own garden in this, in this form through a tower, through self-construction, in a pursuit of shalom, a pursuit of peace by means of power and security. The nations will fear us if we are the mightiest. That is the language of empire you will see throughout, not just the Bible, but throughout history, culminating in Revelation where it condemns the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon. And on and on the story goes. Kings conquer in the name of peace. People turn to false gods, praying for rain, large crops, a large family, etc., all in pursuit of peace and contentment. Yet none of it works. Why? Because contentment is never found in, peace, in greed, and love is never found in lust. Contentment is never found in power. Peace is never discovered through war, patriotism, religion, idolatry, or false security. Now, strikingly, God calls a people out among the nations to find peace, to be models of peace, to create peace, shalom here on earth. The problem with Israel, however, is they fall for the same trap as the nations. So if you read the Old Testament, God is always saying, you look too much like the nations, therefore I'm going to send you to the nations. The Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity, um, um, the uh, Philistines and judges, they're constantly being taken over by by the Philistines because they look like Philistines. They worship like the Philistines. We could say the same thing about the Canaanites and the warning that God gives them as they enter into the Promised Land. Your Old Testament Bible, can I summarize it for you? It is a pursuit of the people of Israel for shalom. First they try legalism, that is the Torah. Then they try libertarianism, that is Judges and Ruth. They didn't try legislation through the monarchy, which you'll find in the rest of the, the, the historical books. Then they try lamentations and literature through, through, through the Psalms and the prophets. All in pursuit of peace. And through it all, Eden's shalom remains distant. Israel, you may recall, was supposed to be a city on a hill, a city of peace. The promised land was supposed to be a land flowing with milk and honey. There's a clear Edenic imagery. Jerusalem literally means the city of peace. 
The first time we meet Jerusalem is the city called Salem or Shalom. And it comes from a high priest, a royal high priest named Melchizedek. And what does he bring? He brings to him authority. He's king. He brings with him peace as priest. He brings it to Abraham in Genesis. And he comes from the city of peace. The city that David will conquer to establish as his capital, to remain the permanent capital of Israel, which is to be the new garden. Because the city is on the top of a mountain, like the garden was. And there God dwells with his people, like the garden was. And if God dwells with his people, you will find his people in peace. Jerusalem. The Mosaic law was to ensure peace. The priests restored peace through atonement and offerings. The kings secured peace through wise administration in the city of peace. The prophets promoted peace by preaching repentance and anticipating the day of the Lord. But this experiment by the end of the Hebrew Bible failed. The law revealed man's blackened hearts. The blood of goats could not regenerate. And kings, get this, were easily corrupted. I'm glad those days are over with. And in the story enters... Jesus. Consider what we get in the New Testament. At his birth, we have the promise of peace. Luke 2. Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Shalom. He preached peace. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. He performed acts of peace. You remember, what does Jesus say when he's woken up from the storm? Right in the middle of the storm, they wake him up. He gets the sleepy out of his eyes. He wakes up like, what's your problem? We're all going to die, right? Remember, what does Jesus say? Some of your translations? Peace. Peace be still. Hush, you could translate it. Exercise an authority over creation itself. Luke seven fifty. he tells to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in shalom. Go in peace. He created peace between the disciples. John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. You will be people of peace. And it may be worth adding here that among the 12 disciples were people who should have been enemies. Matthew, the tax collector, was a sympathizer to Rome. Simon, the zealot, was, was, was anti-Rome and made a, likely was guilty of murder and violence against Roman soldiers and other Roman representatives, like tax collectors. Yet among Jesus' twelve were two men who supposedly hated each other had come to peace. If only I could think of an application for us as Americans. Jesus secured peace, most importantly through his death and resurrection. Ironically, it was an act of injustice and suffering that secured shalom. Jesus takes the worst of humanity, the worst of evil, the worst of the dragon, and death itself, and he defeated it all. Humanity thought they were securing peace by executing their Messiah. Why? They feared the Romans were going to come and take their power and authority. They want peace. But Christ takes their acts of violence in the name of peace, and he gives them peace by conquering death and depravity. The rule of shalom began when Jesus walked out of the borrowed tomb. I can prove this in John chapter 20. You don't have to turn there. I've shown you this before. On at least three occasions in John chapter 20, when Jesus encounters the disciples, remember one time there's 10 of them there, Simon or, or Thomas is absent, and then he shows up again, and Thomas is there, and, and we, we meet Doubting Thomas, so-called Doubting Thomas. On at least three occasions in, in, in that chapter, Jesus introduces himself with the greeting, Peace be with you. Not a, not a greeting you'll see very often prior to the resurrection, I don't believe. Why? Because, because Christ is risen, 
shalom is now present with the, with the followers of Jesus. Thus we see that peace is the work of God's justifying work brought about by the atonement of Christ. Peace requires the offended party to make peace. You ever thought of that? Imagine if I come to your house and burn it to the ground. And as they finally put the fires out, I'm standing on the other side of the street. and says, hey, 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 by the way, I'm really sorry about destroying your property. You think we can just get along now? That doesn't work that way. If, if, if I'm the offender and you're the offended, I have no authority to make the peace. If there is to be peace, it must be the one who is offended. So in order for us to make peace with God, what we need is for God to make not just the first move, but in our case, every move towards peace. He must send his son to make peace with us. All of that is to say, let's look at the book of Romans, right? In Romans, peace for Christians is bought by the blood of Jesus. I want, you, I want you to see how this works in two ways in the book of Romans. First, we enjoy positional peace. This is to say that we possess peace because of the relationship with God and man has been mended. Romans 1.7, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace and peace. From God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, that greeting you'll find in almost every epistle of the New Testament. Grace and peace to you from our, from our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, you'll find it outside the New Testament among the early Christians as well. Grace and peace seems to be a common greeting. Romans 2.10, But glory and honor and peace to every nation that works good, to the Jews first and also to the Gentile. Positional peace. Romans 10.15, And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. Romans 15, 13. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Be filled with peace in believing through the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 33. Now the God of peace be with you. Romans 16, 20. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. You see? Through the finished work of Christ, we are positionally people of peace, which means because we've been reconciled with our Creator, Redeemer, we are people of peace. Right now. And that peace is not rooted in circumstances, but it's found anchored in Christ. Secondly, the benefits of peace. We have positional peace and beneficial peace. Not only do we receive the promises of peace, we experience peace. After all, if you read Romans, what do we really have to fear? Has death not been defeated? Is Christ not alive? Christians are not, therefore, to be people of fear, shame, guilt, or doubt. Rather, we rest firmly in the grace of God who gives us peace. Romans 3.17 And the way of peace they, the sinner, has not known. Romans 8.6 For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Romans 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Finally, Romans 14, 19, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and do the things that will edify one another. You see, it isn't just that we possess peace, but that we experience and share this peace with our fellow man. 
What was lost in the garden is restored by Christ and his justifying work. This sort of shalom only comes by Christ. Read verse 1 of chapter 5 again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All of that lies in the background. The garden is restored in the faith of the believer. That's good news. That's a good benefit. Because in the rare moment I turn on the news, what I don't see is people at peace. I see people at war. Let it be true that when people see a Christian, they see someone at peace, positionally, beneficially. Let's move quickly to the second one. First is peace, the benefit of of, of justification. The second is hope. Now we could add a thousand other here. In fact, um, I actually struggled with what is the chief benefit because because I didn't want to do a dozen of them. Um, What is the chief benefit Paul has in mind here? We can look at several. For example, we can look at joy. Verse two, we rejoice in hope. Verse three, we rejoice in our sufferings. So clearly joy is an emphasis that Paul has here. We can make it a separate benefit of grace. Certainly we could. We can look at character there in verse 4. Isn't that what he says? Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. So clearly he, 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 he sees that the believer who's been justified is one who produces holiness, godliness, character, godly character. We can look at love there at the end of verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So we can look at love. We can look at all these together. All these are benefits of grace. Of, the, of justification by faith. Joy, character, love, all of that. But in my reading of it, and I could be wrong, hope seems to be the bigger idea. After all, notice that joy, according to verse 2, is the fruit of hope. We rejoice in hope of God's glory. Character that comes as a result of enduring injustice and suffering produces hope in verse 4. And as Paul states clearly in verse 5, hope does not put us to shame. So if if you were to to, to the book in verses 1 to 5, you would see he begins with, therefore, having been justified by God, we have peace. And by the end, after he develops this, this crescendo, we have all of these things. He says, but over here we have hope. And if you can understand peace on the one end and Christian hope on the other, everything else is the fruit of that. So if peace and hope are the benefits of, of, of grace, then, then we receive further benefits despite circumstances, including sufferings and persecutions. Benefits like joy and character and love, endurance, all because we have peace on one side, hope on the other. In fact, you see there in verse 5, God's love is the foundation of that hope. Regardless, we see that justification produces both of these, peace and hope. Those Christians are never a defeated lot. How can we be a defeated people when we worship the Savior whose tomb remains empty? At the end of the day, Christians are people who believe in resurrection. And because we believe in the resurrection, we believe in transformation. We believe in regeneration. We believe in sovereign power. We believe in revival. There is no hopeless situation. 
But you all know I love Tolkien. Been reading a lot of Tolkien. Actually, started reading his his, his other tales of of Numenor of Middle Earth. You have no idea what I just said. That's fine. I've enjoyed the the Amazon series because I've enjoyed the benefits of Amazon Prime, right? Including watching the new Lord of the Rings series. I got four episodes in. What are you doing behind? You need to get caught up. Spend the next five hours tonight. You ain't doing none, stay workers, and just get caught up. We need to talk about it, okay? But Tolkien uh, coined the term eucatastrophe. If you read enough Tolkien, you'll find that his characters always end up in the same bad situation. Not just a bad situation, but a situation that seems hopeless. But right at the final moments, when Frodo and Sam are about to die from the destruction of, of, of Mount Doom in Mordor, the eagles come. When, when Bilbo, Gandalf, and the dwarves are about to be overrun by the wargs and the orcs, who come? The eagles come. It always seems to be the eagles with Tolkien, right? And you can, you can give other examples of this. It's eucatastrophe. That it is, and at the worst moments, the, the, the life is, is taken from death. Hope is taken from hopelessness. There's a great scene in The Return of the King. They kind of do this in the movie, but it's better in, in the book where, where Frodo and Sam are at, at their wit's end and they're ready to just lay there and die. They're, they're near Mount Doom, but the, the weight of the ring is too much. And, and in, Mount, in, in, in Mordor, everything's black. The, the sky is darkened with dark clouds. And, and at, at, at their lowest moment, Sam looks up and he sees the smallest dot of a star. And that reminds him of the Shire. It reminds him that not all hope is lost. There is still good in this world, he says, Frodo. And that is what it, the sort of people that we are. There are no helpless situations. There is no task that is impossible to accomplish. It doesn't matter how dark these secular days may become, and I anticipate they become much darker. It doesn't matter how loud the mobs may yell, and it doesn't matter how dangerous governments might become. We never lose hope so long as the tomb remains empty. For he is risen, he is risen indeed. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. And through Christ, we have obtained access by faith into grace by which we stand. And by that grace, we rejoice in hope of God's glory in the end. Not only do we hope in the glory of God, but we rejoice even in our sufferings, knowing our sufferings produce character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see what Paul says there at the end of the day is that when we are justified in Christ. What we get is Christ. And if we have Christ, we have peace, we have hope. And with peace and hope come joy, love, and goodness. Therefore, Paul wants us to march forward as this sort of people who live by faith. After all, we were justified by it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.